Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I am Charlotte Kassaragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Tom Schoen, who is the author of many books. We've had him on before talking about Christopher Nolan for his Nolan variations. Uh, we've also talked about Blockbusters, one of a, a, a seminal book, I think, that really changed my my way of thinking, a really interesting book. And in fact, today, although I think the, the next book he's working on, well, actually, Tom's right here, so I'll let him tell, I'm let, I'll let him tell you. Well, what, what is your new book? I, I, I heard tell of a novel in the works. Is, that, is there any truth to that? statement uh no that's true um i am working on a novel that i uh didn't yeah i never thought that i would sort of uh write it but i've been forced to and um but the but the but the book that is that is coming out next year is a book about paul greengrass that you know the born uh director um so i've sort of worked been you know, interviewing him on and off for, you know, a couple of years. And uh, so, yeah, it's kind of my attempt to get those fantastic, great Bourne films down on paper, along with, you know, the docudramas that he also has done, Bloody Sunday and United 93 and so on, which I think are kind of equally in their way magnificent. Um, So... Uh, so yeah, another Brit and uh, another kind of Brit who's gone through the blockbuster kind of machine, the franchise machine, and sort of come out intact and you know with a style mm. that uh, 
is identifiable and uh and kind of much copied and uh and i think there's you know a lot of consistency thematic consistency there's stuff to kind of get your teeth into um uh you know with the films which is always what you're looking for isn't it really just uh you're always on the lookout for what links them and what doesn't um there's a there's a book to be written on you know the british are coming in fact that is a good title you know the yeah. colin whelan uh when chariots of fire uh won the oscar he was like the british are coming the british are coming yeah. and it's like you know you have um nick rogue john borman that generation and yeah. then you have aging line alan parker ridley scott and i guess paul greengrass and christopher nolan although i know nolan is mid-atlantic really yeah he's both he's sort of have got dual nationality mm-hmm. um uh yeah and i mean there's definitely you know they're kind of the the next generation i guess they're all sort of reared on uh spielberg movies and just like we were and uh you know greengrass in particular is very kind of admiring of spielberg and i i think a lot of it's kind of to do with that kind of orchestration of chaos but perfectly legible chaos so that you know it's uh kind of every frame has is is kind of sort of tick, you know pushing the story along um and uh and I can see that there's when I look at like something like the the you know the Omaha beach sequence or or if I look at kind of one of the born pictures you can sort of see that there's this kind of impression immensely exciting visceral sensation of chaos but then there's, there's also like picking out little details that are uh, uh sort of driving it sort of forward um so yeah so but yeah it does interest me like kind of how you kind of withstand the enormous pressure of of making those films um with all that's kind of riding on them from the studio's point of view um and still come out with something the other end that in some ways expresses sort of a personal vision a vision and you know like that seems to me almost this amazing you know an amazing feat and uh you know, it would kind of crush crush us like cans. I think <laughs> any normal mortal, you know, the 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 amount of sort of of, of fathom pressure on on you know is sort of immense. Uh, and I kind of definitely came out of my meetings with Paul realizing that one of his great assets is the ability to withstand a huge amounts of kind of chaos around him, and um, and actually to kind of thrive in it. You know, mm. whereas it might overwhelm somebody else, he actually rather likes it, and you know, and and that, and he's sort of, if if you like, perfectly at ease, walking through this sort of pound per pound kind of pressure on him, and that's kind of interesting. To, uh, you know, I, I'm fascinated by that because, I, you know, it's a it's a it's a kind of unusual, you know, it's an unusual thing. Um, How do you think he does it? I mean, is it just a personality trait? Is it a yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I mean, he's sort of just you know he's quite kind of scrappy in you know he's he's rambunctious and scrappy and he's mm. he's uh, you know he was a journal TV journalist before he was a movie maker and um, uh, you know he was world in action you know the mm. the sort of flagship kind of current affairs program and a lot of that was being sent to places like the Gaza Strip and uh or the falklands uh during the war or actually argentina during the war or you know sort of go uh, not you know to belfast sort of on assignment to all these different places 
and you know like a real proper journalist um going out there and getting the story and getting the kind of first interview with a hunger striker you know on british tv and um getting into the maze prison and you know getting that scoop uh so you know he's definitely always been in the sort of thick of things and uh you know he's kind of been fired at and shot at and he knows where the camera goes when the fire the the shooting breaks out which he says is low <laughs> he says <laughs> the, moment, the moment the shooting starts the camera drops low because you've gone down low and then you're looking to kind of find a secure spot um so he's kind of like you know he's imbibed this whole you know instinct for like where the camera goes when the cameraman is trying to save his own life mm-hmm. <laughs> uh you know and his thoughts are not necessarily on kind of framing the shots so much as getting something in the viewfinder and also living and uh and i think you know when you look at the born films there's something very um organic about that style like it hasn't just come from him like you know watching too many adverts and deciding he wants to sort of cut around mtv fashion uh mm. or kind of just shake the camera to give the impression of kind of something chaotic like there's something organic to him that comes from having been in enough kind of fight or flight situations um to know so there's this kind of just yeah it's just organic this organic kind of chaos is is and it's sort of quite natural and it's quite um and it's quite remarkable when you sort of watch it i didn't realize but he shoots a lot of those you know he has this method of doing it and it's not really to do with the camera moving uh but do you remember in the Bourne films, all those sequences that were, you know, they're set in the CIA hub where information mm. is flying in from all over the place. And uh, and they're saying, you know, yeah, Bourne's been spotted in, you know, the the Garden or whatever it is. Um, and what he would, there would normally about like maybe half a dozen of those scenes throughout the course of the movie. And um, all shots, normally they would be shot separately. And what you would do is r- run them all together and, and do a like half an hour play, basically, mm. of uh, each of that information hub. And he would give every sort of cast member enough information to essentially have a, a fully functioning, you know, information hub that, that you know, they, where he could just simply set the play rolling uh, and, and, and then feed into it bits of information. Born's in Paris, Born's here. And then, and the cameraman would then literally just have to kind of catch what he could of an unfolding piece of action. So in other words, it wasn't some contrived bit of, I mean, the cameraman genuinely was swinging from face to face, uh, trying to follow what was happening in front of him. And that kind of spark of kind of, 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 of chaos is kind of genuine, you know, like mm. there's, you see it, um, and you can feel it and it makes it very exciting and, you know, um, so it's, you know, it's a really, you know, essentially he took a style that was, you know, learned, you know, in sort of news journalism, um, you know, ducking bullets and then uh, and, and put it into blockbuster movies. And uh, and those kind of, it's all about fight, it's fight or flight. It's kind of that mm. instinct, you know, um, that's very, that turned out to be very useful for, the studios because they have so many situations where that's actually a dramatic situation so yeah it was really great it's really kind of it was fun getting into all of this with him 
Um, Captain Phillips as well is a sort of one of one oh, of his yeah. films, which is just uh, amazingly tense. And I think I always think that Tom Hanks was robbed because I think he, that's actually his best performance. Yeah. I think it's better than Saving Private Ryan. That that moment where yeah. he sort of cries with utter relief oh, was yeah. just is just stunning for its naturalism. It's just uh, yeah. I mean, that was done very much on the hoof. There were, um, I think they had a scene as scripted uh, where he's on the phone to his wife up in the cabin, the captain's cabin, and uh, on the phone to his wife, Phillips, you know, breaks down. Mm. And, uh, and they were sort of trying to get this scene and they were trying to get this scene and it just wasn't working. It felt fake and it felt phony. And um, and they were really kind of, you know, out of ideas. Um, and But they were shooting on a real ship, um, a rep, not uh, the actual ship that was hijacked, but it's kind of sister ship. Hmm. And uh, the captain was there and they asked him, what, where would he have been taken um, when he first got on board, when he was kind of, you know, and he and the captain said, well, they would go down to the medics bay. And uh, he says, where's that? Okay, six decks down. So they, they go, okay, well, why don't we just go down there and shoot it? And um, so they, you know, took the camera down, took Tom Hanks down, and they found there was a medic working there, the girl who's in the film, um, who's a real medic and wasn't expecting to kind of be in a movie that day. And... Uh, and, you know, Paul tells her, you know, okay, so we're going to run this scene and, like, Tom Hanks is going to come in, but I want you to just, you know, pretend it isn't Tom Hanks and I want you to kind of give him a kind of medical check. Uh, you know, uh, he's going to have kind of nicks and cuts and um, I do what you would normally do with someone when they sort of come in and they're bruised and battered. And um, and she went, okay. And then they shot. And the first time they did it, she got a little to, you know, distracted by the fact that it was Tom Hanks and it sort of didn't work. Um, and I think the second time they shot it, they completely sort of nailed it. And it was her, you know, uh, sort of very soft reassurances. Um, it's okay, you're okay. Uh, I can't remember what the exact wording is, but she's, do she's being very kind of professional. And that was the kind of springboard for Hanks to then feel to relax. You know, it's the first time in the course of the movie that anyone has been remotely nice to him, you know, mm. and uh, it's sort of the, and sort of the weight, the stress all comes off just because she's saying, it's okay, it's okay, you're, you're all right, you know, and that allowed Hanks to kind of lose all this kind of emotion. And they, they had him kind of wired up, you know, with to a kind of, cardio monitor and pulse and, and whatnot and um and afterwards the uh you know uh the other sort of medic who was in charge of these said you know what his his reactions his physical reactions were exactly those of someone in shock like wow. he managed to kind of complete physiologically kind of reproduce it so and i mean yeah i mean i think it's an amazing scene too and uh i think the hanks is great in that film uh, yeah and it's definitely one of the kind of late great you know sort of uh, performances of his but then he's always passed over at the Oscars it's very you know he's had his he had two yeah, uh, yeah. and they and they kind of want they just want something new and they you know they 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 feel they've exhausted him you know but mm. uh, 
Yeah, no, they always. It's it's great shame that they don't. They don't. I, I think the same way. I'm like every time he does something, I more or less think, oh, this should be, uh, you know, nominated. But it, it, he always kind of gets passed over. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, and what's Paul working on now? What's his? Uh, what's his? Uh... Uh, I'm not sure if I can talk. Oh, to, uh, okay, sure right. I can really say yet because it's mm. not really official. But the. Um, uh-huh. uh, but something, <laughs> and uh, you know, because there was a can. He's had a kind of, you know, pandemic came and movies changed, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you know, so it's like a, so it's yeah, it's uh, I, but it'll be good, I think. Um, and it'll be included in the book. It'll be something that you. Yeah, I'm about. sort of waiting for him to finish with it. I've sort of been standing over him, drumming my fingers and saying, get to it so I can finish this book, please. <laughs> you and me both. You yeah, and me both, exactly. brother. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, give me my final chapter. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so, um, but yeah, I mean, he's a lovely guy. I mean, he's very, um, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's just a dear, sort of decent dude. I mean, it's very, uh, he's a nice, nice guy. It's nice to, find that you know um you sort of think of directors as having by nature to be kind of authoritarians and mm. barking orders and um and uh and i think he's got you know he's definitely got the there's that he's got that kind of leader instinct you know like he can come he can kind of he can lead um but he's not mean you know he's not a barker mm. he's not a shouter mm. uh, and uh and that's kind of I think that's kind of interesting because he's sort of decent. He's he's always trying. He's you know you could tell it from his films because they're always sort of trying to mediate between extremes. There's the you know it's it, it, you know in Bloody Sunday it's the uh, the IRA and the English. It's sort of the uh, in Born it's kind of Pam Landy and you know and then the bat the, the uh, who's the who's the bad cia brian, guy brian cox and uh... of course yeah yeah exactly and then you know his kind of heroes are always trying to sort of thread this needle in the middle mm. and sort of balance these kind of extremes and that's him you know like you know uh that's very much him the peace this kind of peacemaker in the middle of kind of you know bombs and and bullets and stuff what I also like about him, and I, I think this is where uh, his real strength, and I think it's very consistently through it, is uh, I think this comes from what you said as well about his his TV work, is that he finds the drama in the very specific events rather than and in yeah. and in real in real situations like so Captain Phillips, you've never been on board a ship like that. You know, we've mm-hmm. we've got millions of those ships that are going around. Well, thousands of those ships that are going around the world every single day. We've got you know hundreds and thousands of people who work in those ships, and yet the cinema has one movie about, or maybe two. There's a film, a Danish film called The Hijacking as well, which uh, mm. features the, the a ship uh, like it. But you you don't see that sort of thing. And the same thing, you know, yeah, like the air traffic controllers in United ninety three. You know yeah. that that's done so well, and it's it's all about people who do their jobs and yeah. suddenly having to to do their jobs extra well. You know, yeah, no, it's it definitely it's true. I mean, the more those movies kind of go out into hyperspace, uh, the more there'll be room for somebody who is trying to kind of nail them down a little bit more. Um, mm. And you're right; it's the journalistic instinct and 
I think he's the first to say like his films often begin with him just kind of saying what's going on in the world like what like his journalistic antenna kind of go up go up and he kind of just he reads the uh reads the signals <laughs> he picks up the tremors on the rail the rail track and he uh tries to make sense of all this kind of information that's coming in um I mean, he's, he's amazingly well informed. I mean, he's sort of always he's on top of everything. I mean, I I uh, I was working quite separately on something about Albert Speer in the middle of it, and he said, "What are you working on?" I said, "Albert Speer," and he immediately kind of went, "Oh, Albert Speer, the one that the, you know professed responsibility but not guilt at Nuremberg," and then he ran me through kind of Speer's career, and uh, just you know he had no idea we were talking about Albert Speer that day, but like just to have that kind of off the cuff knowledge about most of the sort of you know uh that sort of nazi regime like he just uh it was impressive uh i think uh and i can see how it would be impressive too if you were you know in hollywood um you know i i think uh where nobody knows anything <laughs> you <know? laughs> Uh, you know, here's a guy with kind of real world experience. Um, well, yeah, uh, I mean, it, it sort of goes against that sort of, you know, some people in Hollywood talk about five arc structure and five act structure and a character arc and this, that, and the other. And and then somebody says, well, hang on a minute. What, what if somebody could, you know, what about this true story of the, a boat? And what does that involve? And what does hijacking yeah. it involve? And how do they get on board? And how will they yeah, take yeah. control? And it's the nuts and bolts that creates the story. It's not, you yeah. don't need, oh, but at which point will there be redemption? You know, we, that, nobody gives a monkey. That's not how the world works, you know? Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, he kind of like he was working. I think he in in with Captain Phillips. There was a slightly more kind of gun ho version of that script that he was working mm. on, that he got rather. Um, and uh, and I think he yeah he did what he you know usually does, which is he kind of he researched the hell out of it, and mm. uh, and sometimes he'll employ a researcher to kind of you know dig around, help him. Um, and uh, and yeah, did exactly what you said, which is just find out how the ships work. You know, find out how the water cat why how they use water cannons to repel the the skips, and you know, um, uh, and so on. And also, kind of the motivation for the hijackers, and to sort of not have them as like little jihadis who are kind of uh, you know, uh, but instead driven by economic imperatives. Uh, and uh, you know, so that's. I, you know, it definitely, and but the but but at the same time, you know, it's a clever bit of squaring the circle because it still delivers on uh, on being a kind of exciting thriller that you would sort of say is very much within the kind of mainstream, but it's just minus the jingoism, minus the the uh, the more Hollywood touches, mm. and you know, it's kind of basically a film. It's a, it, you know, it's a film that you wouldn't be embarrassed to watch with non-American audiences. I mean, that's it's mm. a film about an American hero that you can easily that would play equally well with sort of non-American audiences mm. uh, and isn't sort of just offhandedly insulting to the rest of the world. <laughs> um, you know, so there's a sort of, you know, he's he's definitely got the. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely got the kind of geopolitics of it just feel a little bit more democratic. Um, and, mm. uh, you know, and I think there must be a little bit of a struggle to get something. Like, a lot of reassurance, I think, goes on with a film like that to just let everybody know that 
yeah, this is going to be a much more informed version of that. But don't worry, it can still hit the points you want it to hit. It's still, mm. you know, um, uh, you can sympathise with the quote-unquote bad guys. You can, and it won't take away the, the, the you know, the, the thrill of the film because, I mean, what's clever about it is that you end up sympathising with them and fearing for what's about to come down on their heads um, because you know that they've just kind of kicked the bear and, mm. you know, American firepower is just about to come and demolish them. And there they are, you know, with their dreams of one day getting to America. And, you know, there's a there's pathos to them that, you know, it's very, he said he, he watched Dog Day after, Afternoon it was sort of all really a version of Dog Day Afternoon, you know, whereby, you know, the bank robbers go in and, you know, you realise very quickly they're completely outclassed mm. um, and, you know, something bad is coming their way mm. and they ain't going to get out of this. And, you know, that can be the drama, you know, mm. that can be. Uh, and how that can coexist with a movie in which, you know, you're still you know, to some extent, finding it exciting that the American, you know, military is turning up and the snipers are getting their, their, their rifles out and there's that sort of impressive sense of kind of American might uh, exacting justice and, get, and getting it. Um, those two movies kind of coexist. It's weird. It's just, you know, you wouldn't have thought. You might have, you know, what I, yeah. you wouldn't have thought they would they would combine well. Um uh, but I think that's that's the nerve. That's where kind of Paul's sent nerve. It takes nerve, I think. Mm. You have to kind of those two things seem like opposites, and he's going to stand in the middle and say, "No, no, there's something to be done right in dead center." And people are probably going, "No, I don't think so. This movie's a Marxist. What are you talking about? We can't make you know like this." And uh, and he's saying, "No, no, no. It's not Marxist. It's, it's just it's still going to be exciting. You're going to, uh, but it's just going to and and." takes nerve you know you just stand mm. there and eventually it comes you know you make it um the nerve of allowing nuance yeah you know exactly that's um, my title <laughs> he's writing it down listeners <laughs> you, you heard it first here um, which i mean that that provides us with, with a, a segue perhaps um uh into a, a film i really wanted to talk to you about um, Oppenheimer, uh, the new Christopher Nolan, not not so new at the moment. I think it's coming out on Blu-ray or DVD around about Thanksgiving. Um, yes. And uh, I was utterly uh, blown away, a bad, bad choice of words probably, um, but mm. I think it's probably Nolan's masterpiece, um, which is not a word I would use sort of lightly i i, I mm. honestly think that having rewatched a bunch of nolan's movies since reading your book i would say he has really produced quite a number of them i, I think he's 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 done that that trick that great filmmakers do which whatever film you're watching is your favorite film by that director yeah, you know, so, so barry Lyndon is my favorite kubrick unless yeah, i'm yeah, watching yeah. the shining in which case that's yeah, my favorite yeah, yeah. kubrick and um, so I, I just wanted, I wanted to get your take on it. Cause, yeah, uh, no, I mean, I, you know, that's interesting. I mean, he, he, I think he has the same view of them, um, you know, which is they're all his babies and he can't choose. And, uh, so I think maybe with a kind of really good filmmaker, like they, you, that you catch that off mm. the 
you get that mm. with Scorsese too. It's very, uh, but yeah, it's it's very hard to find one you don't uh, at the time you're watching. It, I think is great, but the um, yeah, I mean, I was definitely very, I yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I already liked. You know, I'd written the book, and I had, as you say, I'd pinned, I'd uh, picked out the ones that I thought were like the great ones in there, and um, and there are a few, and uh, and I was still impressed by it. I was kind of sat down and you know watched it, and uh, I think it must have been about June, and I kind of uh, saw it on one of those kind of big IMAX screens um, in the Lincoln Center in New York, and. Uh, and I, yeah, I just couldn't, it was so, the thing that really impressed me was just how engaged it was. I, I found it fully, particularly after, you know, Tenet and to a degree Dunkirk, but they were kind of using, the, they were pushing the envelope in terms of abstraction, like kind of what, uh, in terms of the available information about the people you were watching on screen, you know, the the characters in Dunkirk deliberately not fleshed out as, in sort of typical Hollywood terms, you know, with a kind of hero, it doesn't have a hero. It's just got many, many men and women. And uh, uh, and then Tenet, where the kind of less you know, the better off you are. That's the sort of philosophy of that that movie, where kind of ignorance is a, is a weapon, you know, and knowledge is a sin. And, you know, it's kind of like the less you know, the better. There's like the spies, there's ciphers and... A film I rewatched and and has gone very very much up in my estimation. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, it yeah. really it really leapt. You know, two or three. There's definitely places. something very audacious about it. Mm. Uh, but the but yeah, but but abstract. And so the thing that with Oppenheimer was, I just couldn't. I was so impressed by like how engaged he was with this man on just about every level, whether it be romantic, sexual political uh scientific philosophical moral like every it was very layered and i felt like there wasn't an aspect of him that had been uh sort of neglected and i came out of it with just this kind of thinking oh it was just a fantastic kind of prismatic portrait of him you know um and with just a very firm sense of where i stood on him his ethics and so on. And it was, uh, it's kind of, yeah, it was just, as people have said, just very nuanced, very complex. Um, And it sort of plays, it's interesting. When I first watched it, I was excited because it was thrilling and because it was Nolan, you know, kind of maintaining momentum for this sort of three hours and you're kind of swept along. Um, And then I sort of, you know, I sort of went back and read it again. I read the script and I kind of, um, and I also spoke to him and I kind of, uh, and I sort of went back to it that way. And and I realised that there's, again, there's almost two movies in there and one of them is thrilling and exciting. And then one of them is extremely damning. <laughs> the yeah. portrait of him that emerges is so rel- relentless and unblinking and, uh you know he gets away with nothing and uh and so there was something very scrupulous i think about it and i felt like very that it was a moral film ultimately 
I just felt there was a great sense of morality to it. Um, and I do think there is that to his films. I mean, he's very, um, uh, you know, he's made a lot of movies in the kind of crime, the area of crime, and they do have this sort of Dostoevskyan, he's got this fascination with kind of guilt and with nemeses that come and punish you uh, for the sins you don't even know that you've committed. I mean, they're all kind of portraits of guilty men. You know, you go back and it's in Memento of a guy who is so smart. He doesn't even, he's talked himself out of the, if you take one reading of the film, the murder of his wife, you know, and he's the, the his guilt over that has driven him out of his mind. And, um, and he has no clue how guilty he is. Uh, until the very end, and then he gets a little glimpse of it, and then he prefers not to know. And that sense is there too in Inception. You know, he's kind of guilty, and the entire movie is him driven into this dream world rather than confront the fact of his guilt. And uh, and I just, uh, I definitely, it's always been there as like a kind of a as a thread. And I felt that Oppenheimer was like the sort of the this magnificent expression of that because you know yet again you've got somebody who doesn't really know how guilty he is incredibly smart too smart can convince himself of anything and then numbs himself in order to get the job done and belatedly far too belatedly awakens to the kind of ethics of what he's done and the moral sense and then is dogged by guilt uselessly because it's no good to anybody by that point, but he's dogged by that and shadowed by that for the rest of his life. And then it it receives this sort of perfect expression, this shadow in the character played by Downey, you know, who's this sort of, this sort of, this nemesis just rises up out of the shadow to kind of strike him down for his crime, essentially. And so it's, to me, it's like crime and punishment. It's sort of like, here's what he does wrong, and here's what, how he gets paid back for it. Mm. Um, and uh, and the McCarthyism and the politics of it recede a little bit. And I just sort of think, no, 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 this makes perfect sense to me. Uh, he, This man is a sinner <laughs> and uh, and he's punished for his sin, you know. And yeah, it's uh, so, I, yeah, I, you know, I really felt, uh, I think that, yeah, as I say, the kind of the morality of it, the fact that you had this kind of, granular portrait of 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 what it is to be guilty and uh and not quite know uh which is the the, the real torment uh mm. you know that's sort of him that's sort of his characters anyway like that's that's and i think he's got it on screen and i think uh you know to see all of the that's in the film and it's got so much in it um the a bomb the h bomb the Reds, the Nazi, like it's got so much in it. <laughs> but to see all that stuff just corralled and organized as a sort of psychological portrait, it really felt to me like he was, because I always felt that with him, that he had a much better grasp of human beings and psych, the psychology of human beings than people gave him credit for, because he mm-hmm. was, the films are so smart and they're so, you know, um, there was this sense of, you know, that people get of kind of coldness or, I never understand I always, that. 
I never understand that accusation of Colonel's Kubrick gets it as well. And it's like, are we watching different films? I, I mean, you can think <laughs> yeah. and feel at the same time. It's not, it doesn't have to be yeah. mushy, you know. I think there's a slight, I mean, I definitely, I know, I mean, I, I think kind of, um, yeah, I think people don't really, I think there's a slight, the terms are a bit, little bit loose too. I think um, if you don't emotionally engage with a film, that's a very boring film you know mm. Uh, mm. and uh even if it's the just the emotional engagement of i hope that guy doesn't fall in the water you know uh or whatever it is um you know those films they have to be emotionally engaging or they wouldn't be working in any way whatsoever um and i do think that what he has is just that i guess it's a quite an english thing of of, of the sense of a kind of great emotions but held in check or in reserve or just deep down <laughs> and uh you know uh and i think you definitely get that in the kind of the architecture of a film like inception you know down is the only way up forward i think they say at one point um yeah and i sort of think yeah i mean it's it's yeah it's not it's like all these things it's just not quite not quite accurate but he does um yeah, but I felt like with Oppenheimer that there was, but the the sense of his understanding of like how people work, how the mind works, how you know how guilt works, how how denial works, you know all these things was just really spot on, really accurate. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't know whether it'll settle that or win over the converts. I mean, I have found people that sort of aren't normally. Nolan people coming on board, as it were, with mm. that film, um, which is, I guess, borne out by the you know the box office, which is you know phenomenal. Um, mm. I mean, I was totally unexpected. I you know, I'll be honest with you. When I saw it, I thought this is fantastic, and I don't know what it's going to do. I mean, right. I because it was before it came out, and I was just like, I just have no idea. This could be, uh, you know, I could see it. I I could see it going. I wasn't sure. I was right. like, this could be his cane, meaning, you know, the kind of the great film that gets jilted and left at the altar a little bit. Like I just had no, that is a plausible, that could have been a plausible future for it. Yeah. You know, a sort of overambitious kind of film that bet too heavily on the idea that a talky three hour movie full of nuance and complexity was going to go over well at the box office and people go, well, of course that it was a great, it was an honorable attempt. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, and to be, to be rediscovered it, in five years time and, and yeah, yeah. Uh, reclaim uh, criteria, I, we'll save it at some point, you know, that's right. You know, and I definitely, I'll be honest. I definitely said, I thought that and I said, I'm just not sure um, what this is going to do. And, um, uh, and so when it came out and it did what it did, I mean, I literally was just almost, almost shocked. I mean, I was like, uh, that I wasn't expecting it. And it does go to something about him that I have found, which is, I mean, I felt the same way about Memento too. I kind of, I thought Memento was great when I saw it and I saw it before that film came out and I was clueless as to like how it would do as I think all the distributors were too. They were all mm. frightened of it. Um, and I think that there is easily a kind of world in which there's a sort of an alternative Borkasian universe in which Christopher Nolan is a much more kind of cult, left field, 
taste of kind of movie aficionados whose latest films are supported by a small coterie of kind of critics and cineasts (laughs) who kind of haul him around and say, why isn't our guy better known? It's so unfair. And, you know, like I totally see that universe and I, each film that comes out, I sort of think he's probably about to go into that universe. Mm. Uh, And so I'm always amazed that they're that they're as huge as they are and of course the that tells me that they're also uh they're playing several games at once you know there's more things there's lots of things going on here the the cleverness the complexity isn't the whole story there's sort of there are obviously much deeper broader sort of things he's hitting on you know um which is where the emotional engagement comes in um uh but yeah I think because critics, they, you know, tend to be a kind of clever bunch and we like, um, you know, clever filmmakers, uh, we sort of almost are slightly surprised when they succeed because we're like, hang on, well, that shouldn't be being popular. What's the, mm. <laughs> like, mm. how is that working? You know, and but of course, it's not the only thing that's going on with him. You know, like there are other things driving the films um, and it, it can be hard to spot the, what they are actually, but the... Uh, I mean, I still don't quite know what it was with Oppenheimer, except to say that, I mean, I could offer, I, I could offer a possible because uh, I went, I went to see it twice, and I saw uh-huh. uh, purely because I was desperate to see it. it. Came out later in Italy than any anywhere else. It was like late August, I think, mid August. So I saw it first in Italian, just because that was the first showing I could go to see it. And then I saw it in English, like on the... So I saw it in Italian on Wednesday and then waited the Monday until there was an original language version. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, when I saw it in Italian, I was thinking, I really like it. I really, it's amazing and really good. But there's a kind of grammar of... Um, Hollywood to it of a, of a more uh-huh. conventional Hollywood movie, which made me a little uncomfortable. So, for instance, the sort of uh-huh. court scene where um, Robert Downey Jr. gets his comeuppance, and where uh-huh. the uh, the Emily Blunt says something, and and you sort of think, yeah, yeah, you know, uh-huh. yeah, in your face, and uh, <laughs> uh, and I was thinking, no, this isn't quite right, and I how, you know, are we feeling that he's 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 being let down by he's been hard done by, you know, um, which is a possible reading. And then when I watched it again in English. I don't think it was necessarily a language problem because the Italians are really good at dubbing films, but um, 
just watching it that second time, I just thought, wow, he's using that courtroom situation and all those beats that you are so primed yeah. for, that you want, you want to do it. And he's using them, but he's undercutting every single one of them. You know, you're yeah. you're not you're not being a he's not letting him off the hook. You're not being allowed yeah. to enjoy it. And when, you know, the final triumph that he has, which is like, you know, um the 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 sort of the the civil servant who's shadowing Robert Downey Jr. saying, you know, Einstein mm. and him weren't commenting about you. They're probably talking about something much more important. And you mm. sort of think, yeah, yeah, you're not all that. And then when you hear what he's actually saying, it is actually not something which disparages um, Robert Downey Jr. Mm. Or, or something which is important but just above his pay grade. It's actually about Oppenheimer's feeling that he's he's completely destroyed the world or put the world at existential risk. Mm-hmm. And that felt also so contemporary because it was not just like this is nuclear weapons it's just the 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 climate crisis for me it was just you know mm-hmm. yeah we've 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 still got nuclear weapons and we've added to that mm-hmm. a completely toxic politics which is utterly incapable of dealing with further extra existential crises on top so that final scene was just utterly damning you know is yeah. the inability of the brainiest people yeah. to 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 affect the progress of humanity in a positive way it, it was yeah so there is that hollywood movie that 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 dings all those beautiful points and is extremely exciting and the beautiful editing at the beginning and the, the it drives mm-hmm. you along but even when, when the bomb blew up which is an amazing set piece I remember sort of looking at my watch and thinking, there's still another hour and a half to go. How how are they going to do this? Yeah, yeah. No, it's very interesting. What do you think of that? What do you think of that sort of? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that he's kind of, I mean, working out the relationship it has to like the sort of standard tropes of like the biopic is a fun exercise because you kind of realize that he's really kind of Picasso'd it. You know, he's kind Mm. of, he's taken the biopic which when you think about it is uh, really about recording uh the kind of the triumphs of outstanding individuals who have in some ways helped along the march of human progress right and uh and it's very clear that nolan is kind of correctly ambivalent about whether that's at all applicable to someone like Oppenheimer, that in many ways what he did is halt progress in its tracks because you certainly can't say, you know, that we were clearly better off, nor can you really say that we want to go back, we should have gone back to the way it was. We're literally in this sort of paralyzed point, which he sees kind of Oppenheimer being in, of like helpless to do anything except develop this stuff, which he's going to then regret for the rest of his life. And that kind of sense of kind of moral paralysis that he has is the absolute opposite of kind of the usual kind of like, you know, the, the you know, the march to progress, the sort of the, you know, that you normally get in a biopic. And I think up to the bomb blast, you've got, yeah, it's very kind of fragmentic and, you know, fragment, you know fragmentary and it's sort of, 
it's, it's a little bit cubist almost you've got the, but you do have discernible biopic sort of tropes and mm. uh um and i think kind of then you get to the trinity test and you get two scenes you get two scenes you get the trinity test and then you immediately get the scene in fuller lodge afterwards where he imagines them all being ripped to shreds uh you know by that kind of nuclear light and um you know and it's kind of and it's quite a, it's quite a thing you know to have the point to which the whole movie has been marching the triumph that you know so called of of kind of scientific kind of know-how uh, military know-how to produce this thing and beat the germans and so on or japanese as, as it then is and then to kind of almost halt that in its tracks minutes later i think it's only minutes have the kind of the effects of it and yeah i mean it completely poleaxes that that sort of you know that push of the biopic um i mean he's very uh i mean i actually found the last hour almost the best of it in that you know i mm. kind of really that's where the pattern emerges because you've you you haven't you've been absorbing a lot of information in the first two and like oppenheimer himself you're almost sort of too adrenalized to kind of notice sort of what's been taking shape and then in the first last hour you've got all the pieces of the jigsaw kind of doing I mean, it's classic kind of nolan all the kind of various clues and patterns that he's laid emerge and the way that the downy figure you know essentially emerges as this kind of nemesis and you may have been paying attention to him but maybe not that much i mean i i absolutely love the way he sneaks up on that film through mm. the editing and the storytelling and so on. You're not at all convinced of, you don't know at all that he's the guy to watch out for um, or that he's going to play such a sort of diabolical role in the kind of the drama. And he just kind of like creeps up on you like smoke and like, and in that final hour, there's that realization point, you know, and it's very much a bit like the kind of when you realize the joke, the Joker's diabolical plan, the editing kind of brings it all in and you kind of like, you have that great, it's almost like the opposite of a eureka moment it's like a, it's a, it's an inverted eureka moment where something a diabolical plan has finally emerged and you'll you'll sort of you finally see it um and uh i mean he's so good at those i mean he's you know he's very good at ending his films generally but I, yeah the last hour i thought was absolutely uh was it sort of almost its strongest um and the downy figure is so uh i mean he gets such kind of wounding insights into Oppenheimer mm. um, and he's the one that kind of calls his bluff on the sort of prof the the you know the has the protestations of how guilty he feels and you know and he kind of just sits, thinks it's all just cant you know it's just wind and he uh and uh and he gets these very wounding this very wounding critique which I believe is kind of Nolan's and it feels like the films um you know, insofar as there's a there's a judgment of him, um, uh, you know, as somebody who sort of wanted to sort of win favour with a show of sort of moral responsibility that stopped just short of actually anything like an apology or a genuine admission of culpability. Mm. Um, I mean, it was a very clever game that he played, you know, um, wherein he sort of made statements that seemed very much like he was taking the kind of ethics of it 
on board and he seemed to be responsibility was a word he used how much it weighed on him but he never actually said you know i'm guilty i did it and that's I, a back to albert speer aren't we i mean it's, it is it, like, that's exactly... exactly what it reminded me of yeah it, you know it reminded me of like the way that you know he split that you know exactly the same thing of kind of omitting it without saying i personally did it um and uh but yeah so it definitely kind of it sort of stays on him i think and mm. uh it's very unusual. It's very kind of, you know, like it's, it's, it, it, he's such a faulty, you know, he's such a faulty man, you know, and there's a view too, which I think his wife expresses in it that, you know, I think she says, what did you think that if you just sort of wore the, the sackcloth and allowed them to tar and feather you, they would forgive you. I think she says, mm. and, uh, uh, and, you know, there's a bit of me that thinks, and I don't know whether this is true or whether this is intentional in the film or whatever, that thinks that, because there's a there's a moment where he could have stepped away from those, the, you know, the, the hearings into his security clearance, which turn out to be this sort of humiliating kind of kangaroo court for him. Mm. Uh, he needn't have fought that battle. Um, you know, he could have stepped away. And I think Einstein advised him to kind of step away. Like there was no, it was a pointless battle. The security clearance was going to lapse anyway. What what possible good would it do to sort of fight this very subtle slur on his, you know, his reputation by, and it's, but he did, he, st- he decided he wasn't going to take it. And he decided he did want to fight. Mm. But I, there's an argument that says that he, the reason he did that was because he knew he was going to lose that it would turn him into a martyr that there would be uh that he wanted a stage on which to martyr himself to sort of mm. you know and show and that that i think is in there and so it gets to this slight kind of sense of martyrdom and also sort of masochism like you know he knew he was going to get beat up mm. and still he stepped into those rooms and you kind of wonder whether there was a bit of him that just sort of, you know, a guilty man looking for someone to come along and punish him for what he'd done. Uh, but I don't know whether that's true. I don't know whether that's Chris's view, but that's definitely was one I thought. I was like, well, you know. Well, it's, um, it's what D- Downey Jr.'s character kind of, you know, he, he that's his bait and switch, isn't it? He's, he's going to, he knows he won't be able to resist it. And and then he yeah. puts him in a broom closet. So yeah. it denies him the stage. And it's just Machiavellian and office politics. And it's uh, low. That's totally right. No, he, the, that's why he understands him very, very well. Mm. And he understands exactly the, the level of slight that will w- wound him. Uh, because remember, he's been wounded. He was wounded by Oppenheimer's comments L- about lowly Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lowly that's right. And he felt his ego got bruised, and he yeah, yeah. and he and you know, and it sort of turned. They, I mean, it's like a lot of Nolan's films. It's like about two guys who kind of get into each other's heads. It's like a head game. Oh, the prestige, like, yeah, yeah. Like the prestige, exactly right. Okay. Where it's like he just can't let this guy go. He's just something about him. It just insinuates his way into his skull, yeah. and you know he just has to get into the ring with him. And of course, in doing so, he just faces certain defeat. And you know, there's sort of it kind of kills round... both of them as well. I mean, it kills both of them because Downey Jr.'s political right. career is shredded. 
That's exactly right. So it's sort of mutually assured destruction, as they say. <laughs> you know, like to coin a phrase. Yeah, to coin a phrase. But they end up in a kind of, uh, I guess, a you know, a, a personal exchange of nukes. You know, it's like kind of psychologically nuking each other, and of course, n- nobody survives. But it's very. Um, but yeah, he's good. At, I mean, he's very. That's why when I sort of the Danny figure made a lot of sense to me as like you know all that. The, you, there's a lot of films of Nolan's in which there's like a double, you know, there's a shadow, there's a doppelganger, there's a, there's a, who's kind of, there's shadowing the kind of hero and you sort of, you could almost be imaginary, like in, in Insomnia, I yeah, I don't think he is imaginary, by the way, but I think Robin Williams said to him at one point, like, he's like uh, Jiminy Cricket, isn't he? Like, he's just this kind of uh, voice in his ear. Mm. and uh or on the phone and um he could just as easily not exist and um you know he's just the the conscience of this person made flesh and uh and i sort of i really liked that 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 was very interesting i felt like there's a lot of that in a lot of nolan's kind of his end his his bad guys his villains you know um they often have that sense of like having just been summoned you know, like when the Joker appears at the start of the Dark Knight, he's just he's just standing there on a curb of a, of a Chicago street, and it's like he doesn't get introduced. He's he's like a he's like a weather system. You know, like he he, he, he just kind of like he just sweeps into the movie, and it's like it's a force of nature rather than a character almost. You know, yeah, yeah. and it's like where has he come from? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, is he? So there's. And I think that's very, it's great because it makes them the perfect nemesis for whoever his sort of protagonist is. Um, they, as they, as I think he says, you know, like you complete me is being sarcastic. You know, he's mm, quoting the yeah. line of Jerry Maguire, but like you definitely get that from Oppenheimer too. You get these two, they these two men, the yin and the yang. They complete each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing you just mentioned earlier, I would want to come back to is um, the, you mentioned Picasso at the uh, as a sort of the cubist biopic yeah. of putting together all these different pieces. Because um, uh, the the Terence Malick book that I'm working on at the moment, he uses uh, the one of phrase that he's reported to use is cubism as as for his technique of putting together a film of of sort of like using lots of bits and shots and things to tell a story rather than conventional scenes. And I was talking to, I'm going to name name drop now, I was talking to Caleb um, Deschanel, who was with uh, Malik in um, uh, AFI. He was in the same year and he shot Lantern Mills, Malik's first film. And he was talking to me about he'd just seen Oppenheimer and he was saying the first half of Oppenheimer is Tree of Life. You would never have Oppenheimer in the state it is without Tree of Life. It's utterly uh-huh. that all that thing, how you visualize science, how you visualize the past, how the past relates to the present, relates to the future, how everything is, there's no scenes, there's just shot, 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 shot. And and his, you know, that was his take, is, is this could not be, um, you know, uh, this this is an influence that is, is, you know, visible to him very much so. That's really interesting because that is, that is, that happens to also correspond to like Nolan's own sense of Malik as a sort of somebody he's learned from. And I think the thing, Red line is the 
film that for him he sort of took uh most from i think there was some flashbacks in that uh mm, yeah there's a lot of sort of the the um the the ben chaplin's wife um, yeah and uh wits sort of days at the farm and is there something i think i remember him saying something along the lines of there was something about the way they just sort of cut in and out um on that into and out of the flashbacks that he was making memento at the time and it mm. kind of very much informed the way that he kind of cut around in that film um I, t I tell uh, you a really interesting thing to look at in terms of Thin Red Line is uh, there are sort of yeah. three three main action sequences in that film. There's sort of like the um, there's the sort of front, frontal assault on the hills. Then there's yeah. which is one. I mean, it it takes maybe two or three rushes, but it's basically one battle. And then there's the going behind, sort of creeping around the back. Are hitting them with the artillery and then attacking them. And that's another sort of big set piece. And then the final one is kind of them run, running into the Japanese bivouac. Now, if you watch that Japanese bivouac attack, just like uh -huh. even isolated, that the editing in that is almost like a pop video. It's it's like there's mm -hmm. no narrative linearity. It's just shot, mm -hmm. shot, 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 shot. And it's unbelievable mm -hmm. how... It's almost like it's coming from a like a, a, a later Terence Malick film. It's like it's coming from wow. from like 10, 15, 20 years later. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. um, That's wild. It's 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 really interesting. Anyway, so, sorry to hide. No, no, God. The, it's it's so, I mean, he also, of course, got Hans Zimmer from Thin Red Line. Like that was his mm. uh you know, uh that's where he I mean, I think he had been aware of Zimmer before that, but I think that was the film. Uh, where which kind of really put him in his Nolan's viewfinder and said, "Oh, I want I, I want to work with that guy," um, and of course led to their great collaboration throughout all these films. Um, mm. So yeah, oh, texture—that was the thing that he was talking about with the Thin Red Line. It was sort of to do with the texture of memories and like uh, there must be some sort of vision. There must be some sort of either insert or close up that kind of maybe triggers or is associated with some of the memories. I don't know, but the, but he was, he was always big on texture and Malik and, uh, uh, and the way that's associated with sort of memory, um, which makes sense, you know, and, uh, but yeah, so he, he definitely acknowledges Malik as a huge thing. And that's really interesting about the, uh, the tree of life. I can absolutely see that. That's, that's a really good comment. Um, another, yeah, another I mean, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, it's very, I mean, the, 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 I mean, he's always kind of borrowing, he's got, you know, he does, he watches a lot of quote unquote art house movies, whether Tarkovsky, he's sort of always talking about Mirror, um, uh, which I think his cinematographer introduced him to when he was making Interstellar. Uh, and I think Mirror, I think, informed some of, Oppenheimer, um, and there's some Wells films, not just Kane, but The Trial also kind of sort of fed into it. So he gets these, he gets these very, he watches very kind of, you know, widely. Um, and he sort of takes things and uses them or recycles that, you know, does mm. his version of them. Um, uh, but yeah, the, 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 the sort of, there's, there's, there's an art house filmmaker in there too. 
Oh, absolutely. I think he's got yeah. that sensibility. And I think it's, you know, and I like it's goes back to what we were talking about with Paul Greengrass. It's it that's what who you want to make your it, um I remember George Miller talking about uh, uh get hiring his wife to do the editing of Mad Max Fury Road. And his wife said, I edit rom coms, I don't edit action films. And he said, That's exactly why I want you to edit this, because you're <laughs> not you're not coming with any preconceptions. And uh, and that's who we want to, um, you know, direct our big budget Hollywood movies. Is we want these people who are not necessarily, you know, big. I mean, Spielberg is kind of the exception, uh, you know, that proves the rule. He's the Muhammad Ali. Yeah. You know, how many yeah. other great articulate boxers do you know except for Muhammad Ali? You know, it's just yeah. it's him and you know, there's a uh, there's a large drop to number number two. So, um, what what do you think of the sort of the, the season so far? I wanted to sort of get your general take on this. You know, we're going into Oscar season, and there's a lot of great films. Killers of the Flower Moon has come out, and the Killer David Fincher's film, and there's, yeah. there's uh, Barbie, of course, as well, which yeah. is which was paired with, uh, with yeah. With what 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 did you make make of of the season? Yeah, I mean, well, I definitely thrilled to as i think you know like that kind of opposition of kind of barbie and oppenheimer almost years before it came out i was like the moment they got scheduled against each other i was like oh okay there we go you complete me right that's the mm. they were the sort of yin and the yang of kind of film film going you know um, why that happened and you? You sort of, do you know why you that happened tell me oh well warner brothers boss um was because uh, Nolan was angry with the Warner Brothers boss. What's he called? David Slavin, is it? The, the Slavin, the guy oh, who's please. yeah, the guy who's uh, the strikes or keeps coming out with nonsense about the strikes. Anyway, he was head of Warner Brothers when Tenant was going to be released, and uh, Nolan was angry with their release strategy, and so he left mm. Warner Brothers and made Oppenheimer elsewhere. And so when they knew Oppenheimer's release date, he put Barbie on that day as a like, I'll show him because I'm going to put our big release day and it's gonna we're going to be number one, he's going to be number two, and that'll prove it. But then the irony is that release schedule actually probably elevated Oppenheimer much more than it, um, yeah. than it damaged it. But Definitely. it was basically I mean, how, how, you know, egos, male egos battering each other. Oh, that's funny. Well, I mean, that does make sense. You know, I mean, they did. They ended up helping each other, of course. And I feel like both films came out a bit better for their, mm. you know, their, their their sort of partner at the box office. And um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of the general. I mean, in terms of the sort of general season, I mean, you know. It's it's very hard. I mean, it's the uh, the Oscars. I kind of feel like we're in the quantum realm with the Oscars in the sense that, like, they've they they are they are changing. The Academy membership is changing so fast under our feet, um, and it has become very hard and to call the race or to sort of you know to to handicap the race. Um, uh, which has sort of made it more exciting again, in a way, because you can't, you know, in the olden days, you would have said, uh, well, this is kind of Nolan's version of uh, Titanic, you know, the, mm. the kind of blockbuster auteur who kind of has been generating billions for the industry, comes good with a 
pedigree, you know, period uh, kind of movie um, uh, in which kind of, you know, acting and performance is sort of forefronted. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it ticks all the boxes that you would normally expect of, you know, when one of those guys like Cameron or Zemeckis or Spielberg kind of is rewardable, it's when they have turned from, especially if they turn from sort of, if you like, sci-fi fantasy to history. And, you mm. know, the second one obviously is kind of great, you know, uh, and, a, a, you know, a very regular place for them to go. So it definitely ticks all those boxes and you would have said, right, okay, Nolan's been denied so many times. Um, there's this general sense that, that you know, he's, he's due, basically. Um, it's, it's uh, I think it's remarkable that he hasn't, uh, he hasn't won, or has certainly has. He he should be more nominated than he has been for absolutely certain. Um, uh, and in the kind of normal run of things, you would say that Oppenheimer was a kind of front runner, but you know, it's in this we're in this very unusual, slightly topsy turvy sort of quantum realm now, um, where you know essentially the demographics of the academy are changing and you can see there's this shift away from to put it bluntly the kind of old white guy movies mm. right um mm. the kind of old guard who would have voted for braveheart and savior private ryan you know uh i think ann thompson at ndy calls them the meat eaters <laughs> rather insultingly but she really means all the kind of the crews the you know the largely male um, you know, uh, scenery makers and the, you know, the, the all the guys that are kind of in, in the graft of movie making um, and who will would traditionally vote for certainly a kind of war movie, uh, you know, or get a movie like kind of Braveheart across the line and that would win. And they're, they're now in a, you know, a sort of shrinking kind of part of the, the academy and what's made the academy kind of also exciting is it's been taking all these sort of younger more diverse kind of members on and so you have something like last year everything everywhere all at once winning which is sort of absolutely not from the kind of central casting of an oscar film as mm. delight it's wonderful it's a delightful film loved it uh, and i i wouldn't have called it for the oscar race in a million years mm. uh so i've regularly got used to the idea of it's being completely foxed uh you know by kind of what actually kind of wins and so uh so therefore you know what does that mean i think that it probably means that like something like poor things which i haven't seen but uh everything about that film ticks the box too or that everything everywhere all at once ticked you know uh sort of a younger uh sort of fan base i think it's very you know he's a de very deserving kind of director uh, you like don't it. think Greta Gerwig would get it for Barbie? Do you think that would be a step too far? Oh, they might, they'll probably nominate Barbie, but I, no. I suspect it'll be more in the world, well, in the realm of kind of like you know a kind of um, you know what's the word? I mean, they they want to. I think they have to be seen to nominate the kind of Barbenheimer phenomenon, right? Mm. Um, but I think that Barbie is still very is too outside the kind of film that they it doesn't have enough heft or kind of pedigree it, for that. I mean, it's a comedy. I mean, if anything's more yeah. 
you know allergic to the oscars it's comedies and horror movies so you yeah. know it's it's it just exactly. has that genre which which maintains a which you know who knows maybe that that barrier will be broken after all everything everywhere all at once was was kind of well, a comedy, comedy as well you know but yeah i mean i think also maybe if i might be it's probably not quite good enough i i, right. I liked it i didn't think it was like brilliant uh, but i did love it when i think the the final third of that the musical numbers with ryan gosling i yeah. felt like that picture lifted suddenly and i think that there was a certain amount of full you, fun. you felt the kennedy the kennedy exactly <laughs> right but I think there was some fault finding with the first half that I think felt justified to me. It didn't, you know, there was, the, I mean, it was funny, like the audience I was with, the funniest line was the one that got the biggest laugh in the with the English audience that I saw it with, um, was when they did a voiceover a bit where it says, you know, uh, Margot Robbie may not be the best spokesperson for a point about body image. Do you remember that little? Mm, the, mm. And I, I was like, Oh, okay. So what you have here is that a, a, a moment of candor about the slight bad faith in which the movie has been made was the one that really bolted through and got the audience. You know, yeah. the moment the, yeah. the, that film copped to this slightly kind of, you know, uh, you know, I, bad faith is perhaps the meanest way of putting it, but the sort of uh, that sense frank, frank of candor, you know, candor that yeah. You know, it had its foot in its own trap to some degree, mm. Um, mm. you know, and so, and it was sometimes in at the risk of sort of just, there was, you know, that slight kind of that rust of kind of knowingness where if you just kind of cop to a sin, it's sort of almost enough to get you off it. Well, is it really, is, mm -hmm. it, is subconsciousness enough really to kind of get you off the, off the hook? just admitting mm. to the fact there's something a bit contradictory about a feminist version of Barbie, you know, like, is that enough, you know? So there weren't enough a, a ways for it to, for that, and for that candor to really strike home, except in those little moments. And I actually felt that the Ken performance was just, you know, far and away the funniest and it was great. So I, so there remains, I think the slight sense of like, is it good enough? I mean, really, I mean, they are very discerning, you know, bunch, you mm. know, the Academy members that, you know, they, they do uh so i think that it definitely gets like nominated and it may win for like production design or something like that but i think that the uh but in terms of like the real but in terms of, i always think of like the win you know the real the biggies you know director and film and um and so on uh yeah it feels to me like it's kind of four really it's maestro and poor things and killers of the flower moon and oppenheimer and uh when does zone of interest come out in the u.s uh, that's December, I think. Right. Um, and uh, I mean, I yeah, I haven't seen that yet, but I, that's going to be a hard one. It'll, you know, it could well. Get, it's very austere, right? From I, the, yeah, I saw it. Can yeah. Um, and yeah. I think it's obviously going to get command attention. It's um, and it may even get nominated. Um, uh, you know, but yeah, there's a, there's a there's definitely a difference between the things that can get nominated and the things that kind of can can sort of you know actually win. Yeah, um, I, th I think it would be a definite prestige nomination. I think it's. I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it's utterly brilliant. I think it's. It's like yeah, a, sure. a really, really. I mean, this guy Jonathan Glazer should should really make more films. I mean, for, although if if it that's what he needs to make that good a film, then by all means take your time. You know, 
Yeah, wow. no, he's the, he's the he's the greatest British film director that no one's heard of. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> you know, like he's the one that you're always like, have you seen Birth? You're trying to explain to people like kind of yeah. what 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 they should see. You know, yeah. you're like, oh, okay, look, oh, what's <laughs> um, absolutely, you know. But yeah, so but yeah, I mean, uh, but I also think that Killers of the Flower Moon is a kind of great Scorsese film. I think it's very good, um, and uh, you know. Uh, and I think, and it feels like a very strong contender. I'm not, that's the only reason for it to exist at all, you know, but it's very, um, but I was certainly very kind of excited watching it. And uh, I felt like everything was firing, you know, every, all the cylinders were firing on his kind of movie making. I wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was until the mm. absolute case. There was something, um, you know, I, there, 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 there was a he you know he's he's he he could be winding down you know but he mm. it isn't um uh and i found it just i found it kind of electrifyingly well made <laughs> mm. like i i could i couldn't believe that the pacing of it was wonderful the editing of it was great i mean i just the storytelling i you know yeah i really uh I found that very exciting. And, you know, as one too, that like, I mean, I'm in, in the camp of people who like watch a lot of those, the, you know, his religious movies, you know, Kundun and Silence or whatever. And I'm always trying to make a case for them to people. And like, no, 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 mm -hmm. you really should watch this. Mm -hmm. And nobody ever believes you because all they want to see is the kind of the, the you know, good fellas and, uh, and you sort of, it's okay, fine, I understand. Maybe they're two audiences is what you come, you come to realise, that maybe it's sort of like you're not going to convert them, you know. But I think just recently, like, they've started to kind of merge a little bit, like mm. those two strands, uh, which is to say that kind of very kind of giddy, kinetic kind of sort of talkative kind of Scorsese, and then the sort of rosary bead sort of fingering... Catholic, moral, austere Scorsese have kind of begun to merge rather excitingly. And I think that Killers of the Flower Moon, even more so than The Irishman, perhaps, is like those two streams just mm. totally uh, in one filmmaker now. You know, the, the guy that made Silence is totally present and the guy that made Goodfellas is totally present. And... You know, and you've got it in really, I guess, those two people. You, you know, the the Leo DiCaprio character and the Lily Gladstone character, who could, in a way, come from those two different realms of his. One is from, you know, the 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 the, the land of Goodfellas, and one is from the land of kind of Kundun. And you know, and they're in com their relationship. I found, as he does, endlessly fascinating. Um, you know. And I think he's right to think to realize that it's a fun, a really good relationship to, you know, symbolize, you know, in a sense the the rape of the West of the West, mm. you know, because it's also uh, a Western as well in a in a weird yeah. way. Yeah, mm. um, but I think it also is like that. Their their marriage is the marriage of the two bits of him, you know, the two right. strands of his sort of his sort of films. Um, so for all these reasons, I find that it, you know, it's kind of, it works beautifully. And then of course, Jack Fisk is doing the production design and I was getting a lot of Days of Heaven uh, flashbacks in the course of that, uh, the fire sequence where they're sort of putting up the fire in the, the cornfield um, and particularly admiring the way in which again, classic kind of Fisk, like <clears throat> it was, 
incredibly well researched but also very spare you know like i mm. think like production designers for period movies they tend to kind of go well there's just so much stuff let's just fill it with stuff and you walk down the street and it's just everything's full and you know and what's so great about him is that you get these fantastic details but often it's just like the rest is empty you know yeah. and you look out the rest of the landscape and it's empty and you're like that is exactly how the american west was that's that's how i believe the american west was and i definitely you see it in days of heaven and you definitely see it in colors of the flower moon too you know um but yeah jack fisk what a guy man. what a guy <laughs> yeah yeah He's he's a buddy of mine now. <laughs> I'm going to drop his name as well. Oh really? Great. <laughs> yeah. What's he like? I mean, I, I'm oh, so... he's so generous. He's so generous. Yeah. I mean, you do interviews with people, and of course, you you expect to have your hour or however much time you've kind of asked for. Yeah. And I literally was three hours on the phone with him, and at a certain point, I just had to say, "I'm really sorry, Jack. I've got to go. I've got I've got something yeah. to do." And it's like, but then emailing back and forth and talking a few more times, and just just wonderful, generous guy, really, really nice and uh, mm. and great. He picks his films. Oh yeah, very carefully. <laughs> well, listen, Tom, you, it's been wonderful talking to you again, and I can't wait to talk to you uh, when when your Paul Greengrass book is out because um, that. I mean, not, we've already talked about it deeply, but I'd love to to have you back on once I've read it, so I can argue yeah. with you. And I really yeah, need to definitely. revisit Killer of um, Killers of the Flower Moon because I watched it in Cannes, and sometimes that's not the best way of watching a film. I, I felt a little bit overloaded, and it was um, one uh, of those films was difficult to get into, and all the rest of it. So I, I was, I wasn't, I didn't think it was a bad film by any means, but I was a little bit. This is a sort of three and a half, four star film, and I want a five star film, and I need, I definitely need to rewatch it because so many people have have spoken about it in much more glowing terms. Yeah, and, and you know, and I'd also say this: the, its box office has been healthy, and mm. uh, you know, tracking numbers and cinema scores and all that kind of stuff are a kind of a necromantic science, right? It's sort of, uh, do we trust it exactly? But I was definitely heartened to see that the box office was healthy and audiences were kind of grading it really highly. And mm. uh, so, you know, it definitely is kind of landing, you know, with some folks. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, we'll see, uh, we'll see, uh, see how it play it plays out. Um, Ben, see how it does in the UK as well. I mean, it's out mm. there this weekend. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's definitely uh, meet back back up again, and then we will be able to sort of I'll be able to talk more about what the the film that Paul Greengrass is actually doing. Excellent. Um, thank thank you so much, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. Right. Yeah, my pleasure too. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.